We're continuing our sermon series this summer on the Psalms. Um, But before I begin our scripture reading today, you may have noticed that uh, the bulletin says we're doing Psalms 9 and 10 this week. This is a two for the price of one sermon. And you may have wondered why we would do that. And I wanted to say that this Psalms 9 and 10 were actually originally one psalm. There's a few ways we know that. First of all, there's no separate heading for Psalm 10. Um, in the Greek version of the Bible, these psalms are just one psalm. There's no division there. And most importantly, these two psalms together form one acrostic poem, which means that every separate line starts with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can clearly see how they all fall into one. Probably they got divided at some point for number symbolism. So you'd have 150 as a nice round number of the psalms. But since they go together and the themes fit together so well, I'm going to preach them just as one unit so we can see what the whole says. So with that, by way of introduction, let's pay attention to the reading of God's word from Psalms 9 and 10. To the choir master, according to Mut Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, and that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. 
In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hands. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this word to us this morning, that we may know more deeply who you are, and that we may commit ourselves, abandon ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen. If you come from a big family like me, this might be an experience you've had before. You're all in the car. Maybe you're coming back from church or somewhere else. The parents sit quiet and exhausted up in the front. The kids are chattering away and harassing each other in the back. Uh, but suddenly you notice the absence of one of the usual voices. Somebody is missing. Somebody has been forgotten and left behind. It's never nice to be forgotten, is it? You don't like it when people forget your birthday party or forget your name. Our psalm today is all about being forgotten. And it's actually not surprising that David would be talking about this. You know, usually as you go through the Psalter, you, you notice this pattern. You'll have a psalm or psalms of David crying out for help, and then they'll culminate in a psalm of deliverance, where David thanks God for giving him the help. But as we start the Psalter, we mostly have psalms of crying out for help. You know, if you look at through these first few psalms, uh, say from Psalm 3 to Psalm 17, in these 15 psalms, 13 of them are what we call psalms of lament, psalms of David asking for help. And it's not till we get to Psalm 18 that we get the first psalm of thanksgiving for deliverance. That's the one where we, we finally see God acts to save David from the persecution of King Saul. 
So it makes sense that David might feel a little forgotten. He's been calling out for help and calling out for help, but he hasn't yet been delivered from his trial. So as we look at this psalm, I want us to see three points. First, when humans forget God, it leads to wickedness and injustice. When humans forget God, it leads to wickedness and injustice. Second, although humans may forget God, God does not forget the poor. Although humans may forget God, God does not forget the poor. And third, we're going to see how this psalm is taken up and fulfilled in Jesus. So, our first point. Forgetting God leads to injustice. Uh, In this psalm, we have an idea that we see showing up in a lot of psalms. The idea that the world is full of wicked people who oppress the poor. It's a big theme of the Psalter. In 10 verse 2, we see the wicked hotly pursuing the poor. In verse 8 to 10, we see him hiding in ambush, crouching like a lion, just waiting for a helpless victim to come by who he can attack. Uh, And as I said, this is a common theme in the Psalter, but you know what's special for this psalm is that we really get a window into the heart of the wicked, and we see what they're thinking. We get a peek into these inner thoughts in 10 verse 4. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Uh, And it's not just that the wicked has never heard of God, God before. Rather, in 9 verse 17, they're called all the nations that forget God. This is an active avoidance of God, which is why it says all his thoughts are, there is no God. There's this constant mental effort to suppress the reality of God. But this atheism is not just an idea. It's not just a concept. It's a heart attitude. In 10 verse 3, we learn the wicked person is one who curses and renounces the Lord. Not only does the wicked person not believe in God, he hates him too. And then in 10 verse 11, we see the practical side of this atheism. The belief that even if there is a God, surely he doesn't care about or interfere in the things that happen down here. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And again in verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? The psalmist has given us a picture of all these heart moments of disbelief. God doesn't exist. And even if he does, he's not actually going to show up and do something. And because the wicked person doesn't believe that God will really act to judge sin, you know, that he doesn't believe that any of his actions have consequences. All of this leads him to a prideful self-confidence. 10 verse 4 says, the wicked person does not seek God in the pride of his face. Instead of seeking God, what does he say to himself? In verse 6, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Do you see the foolish confidence there? And not only is this person called greedy for gain in 10 verse 3, He's actually proud of how greedy he is. He boasts of the desires of his soul. Or we could actually translate that word for soul as appetite. I think that's what it is. He boasts in the desires of his appetite. People actually do this, don't they? I don't uh, know if you knew people like this in college or you saw, saw people talk like this, you know, who would boast about how much they drank or partied that weekend. 
But how would you react if you're in your college dorm room and you heard this? Yeah, I evicted so many orphans yesterday, bro. Like, you should have seen their sad little faces. Wow, what a weekend. It's like, no, dude, that's not cool. (laughs) But that's how the wicked person is. That's how jaded they've become. Because there's no fear of God, no fear of any consequences for their actions, this wicked person has become morally numb. His conscience is seared. But he's made a grave miscalculation, hasn't he? 10 verse 5 starts by saying, his ways prosper at all times. Looks like it's going pretty well. But then it adds a second clause, your judgments are on high out of his sight. God's judgment is very real. The wicked one thinks that God has no wrath for him, but actually he is storing up wrath in heaven against himself. There's a great ocean of God's anger and oppression dammed up in heaven, building up, ready to burst upon his head at any moment. He's missed what Paul says in Romans, that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance, to leave room to turn away from our sins. But the fact that God's wrath is delayed does not mean that God has forgotten. The wicked may have forgotten God, but that doesn't mean that God has forgotten him. As 9 verse 7 says, God sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. God's court is always in session. Verse 12 tells us that God is mindful of the poor. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. In fact, literally, God is a blood avenger for the poor. What's a blood avenger? Well, in that culture, you didn't have police, and you didn't have a prosecuting attorney. If somebody does something wrong to you, uh, the only way for justice to happen is if somebody powerful advocates for you. And if you're murdered, if somebody kills you, then it's ultimately up to your family to see that something gets done. This is the blood avenger who comes after your killer. But what about the poor? And what about those who don't have influence or connections or money who nobody stands up for? God is their protector. We've all seen action movies, right? We know how it works. If you hurt John Wick's dog, John Wick is going to come after you. If you kidnap Liam Neeson's daughter, he has a very particular set of skills, and he's going to find you. Well, if you mess with the poor, you mess with God. God will not delay judgment forever. The wicked one will fall into his own pit and be caught in his own snare, 9 verse 15 to 16. 10 verse 15, his arm will be broken and his wickedness found out. 9 verse 3, he will stumble and perish. 9 verse 17, he will descend to Sheol, the place of death and darkness. And finally, 9 verse 5, his name will be blotted out forever. His cities will be rooted out and his memory will perish. In the end, it's not the poor who are going to be forgotten, but it's this wicked, powerful person. Even if he's built cities in his name, this was the way to live forever in the ancient world, was build a city and name it after you and have it stand for generations. But God's going to tear it down. Everything that seems so solid that he was working for is going to dissolve and disappear before the judgment of God, and it will be like he never existed. Okay, so what do we learn from the wicked? What are we supposed to take away from this portrait about somebody who forgets God? 
Well, when we see these portraits of the wicked in the Psalms, I think it's important that we don't just apply them to other people. Uh, I'm not saying that everybody is trying to oppress and kill the poor here the way this person is, but it's important when we see this to look at ourselves and examine ourselves to see how we're tempted, maybe not to the same degree, but in similar ways. So let's think about this. Is there any practical atheism in your own life which you need to repent of? And I'm not just talking whether you say out loud or believe there is no God, but how are you tempted to forget God? And how does that work its way out in the way you sin against other people in your life? Let's remind ourselves how the dynamic works again. Step one, it starts with forgetting God, which it means looking at the world as if God was permanently absent from it, as if there was no just judge capable of providing consequences for what we do. Then two, it works itself into greed, pride, and self-confidence in our hearts. Because there is no just God, we think, we must take matters into our own hands. We buy into a dog-eat-dog mentality. We look out for number one. And then number three, we become schemers. As 10 verse 7 outlines, we use deceit and oppression to get ahead. If there's no ultimate justice, then why not pursue our goals using Game of Thrones-style tactics? And finally, four, this leads to a callous disregard for other people, turning other people into a means to our ends, uh, in the ultimate sense, consuming them. We become predatory animals who destroy other people for our nourishment. So a question for us today, what would your interactions with other people this week look like if you forgot God? And how would that look different if you remember God? Let me just give you one example. Let's imagine you're having an argument with another person. Could be a spouse, could be a friend, a serious argument. And you, you start going at it, and then they say something, and it's a valid point, it's a valid criticism that shows that you're in the wrong. But you not completely in the wrong. It's just sort of partial. You still believe your fundamental point is valid. How, how do we respond in that situation usually? I mean, if you're like me, I think you find yourself pulled into a defensiveness. You think, okay, maybe I was wrong about that, but I can't admit it. <laughs> that would be giving up all of the grounds, uh, especially for this other important battle I need to win. And so we end up doubling down and refusing to admit wrong. When we're doing that, uh, we are in a ends justify the means situation. Even though we did something wrong, we, ha we think we need to win the argument, and so we're not gonna admit it. And that's ultimately because we don't trust God with the situation. We're too afraid of losing the argument to admit that we're wrong. So that's a much smaller example than destroying the poor, but let's be careful because our psalm says this is where it starts. It starts by not being mindful of God. If we were mindful of God, we think, God wants me to admit when I'm wrong. Even if I'm right and also wrong, God wants me to admit the stuff that I'm wrong about and not worry about, let the other, let the other person worry about admitting what they're wrong about. Okay, so that's the first point. Why are the wicked wicked? Because they've forgotten God. But this temptation, which leads to proud confidence, deception, and violence to the poor, it's not the only temptation that we're faced with in this passage. 
There's also, on the flip side, a temptation to think that God has forgotten us. The first temptation, forgetting God, is one primarily for those with the power to sin blatantly against others. But the second temptation applies most to us when we're weak and sinned against. And that is this temptation to despair that God has forgotten. This is something that's, that's so important to balance if we're going to have a biblical philosophy of life. First, all of us are sinners. We are all contributing to the injustice in the world. But also, we're all sinned against. Both are true. And so we need to be on guard against both the temptation that our sin doesn't matter to God, that we can just go on doing it and he doesn't care, as well as the temptation to think that our suffering doesn't matter to God, that he doesn't care about what's happening to us. And, you know, I think it's that second temptation, which is where David really is in this psalm, isn't it? On the one hand, David has all the theological categories down when it comes to God's justice. He knows that God sits enthroned forever, that he judges the peoples in uprightness. He knows that the oppressed will not be forgotten by God. He knows that God sees the suffering of the afflicted, that he will act to do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. David knows all of that. And yet, at the same time, David feels something very different. David knows that God does not hide his face from the poor. But in 10 verse 1, he cries out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David says in 10 verse 14, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation. And yet in 9 verse 13, he calls out, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. David knows that God will judge the nations, and yet he still cries out in 9 verse 19, Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. David knows that God does not forget the afflicted, but he still cries out in 10 verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. David knows that God will judge the wicked, but he still cries out in 10 verse 15, Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you find none. And did that feel a little strange to you? One moment we're saying, God does not forget the poor. The next moment we're saying, don't forget the poor, God. What we have in this psalm is all of these statements of faith, statements of what's true about God, and then interspersed between them, we have David asking God to be the God that he knows God is. Let me stop there for a second. I hope that that's actually already a huge comfort to you in your lives. We don't find in the psalms a bunch of great heroes of the faith who never doubted and just cheerfully kept calm and carried on no matter what was happening in their lives. No, we find weak and afflicted people who really felt the weight of this broken world. These are saints who knew the difference between faith and sight, between what they believed but couldn't yet see. So what do you do when you're in that gap? What do you do when it seems like God has forgotten you? Well, the first step is faith or trust. 9 verse 9 says that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And 10 verse 14 says, to you the helpless commits himself. Actually, I think that's 
too weak of a translation. It literally says, the helpless abandons himself on you. There's no formality here, no pretense. The weak ones abandon all hope and they throw themselves upon God for refuge. Furthermore, this trust, it doesn't mean burying your emotions and pretending that they're not there. It means bringing them to your heavenly Father. 10 verse 17 says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will, to, you will incline your ear. 10 verse 14 says, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. This is one of my favorite names for God in the Bible. It's actually the name that, that Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant, gives God in Genesis. She says, you are a God who sees me. You are a God who sees me. God does see the affliction of the afflicted. He carefully observed each emotion, each sorrow and grief, each hope and desire and fear. The psalm says he takes them into his hands. God makes our problems his problems. None of our desires is too small to receive the tender care of his attention. As Jesus tells us, your heavenly Father knows what you need even before you ask. So this psalm is an invitation to us to trust God with our emotions, to bring them to him for comfort. And there's another promise in this passage as well. 9 verse 18, the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. We may have to wait for our faith to become sights. We may have to wait for God to act, but we're also given the promise that we have a sure hope. God is with the poor in their oppression. He's actually strengthening their hearts. Did you catch that? So that they can endure it. If God is for us, even the gates of hell cannot stop us. And that brings us maybe to the strangest part of this psalm. You see, clearly David is still in the midst of tribulation here. He's still waiting for God's deliverance. And yet we already find him praising. 9 verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. In fact, the beginning of the psalm sounds just like a psalm of deliverance. You're completely thrown off by the way it starts. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. And that, you know, you surely don't see where the psalm is going from that. David is praising before he has even been delivered yet. Even at the same time that he's crying out for help. Such is the hope God has given him that he already has room for joy, even in the midst of his affliction. It's complicated, right? It's, it's not that he's not crying out in his misery, but he's also praising. You see, so sure is God's justice, so sure is God's deliverance, that it is already good news, even for people who are still waiting for it to come about. And so when we come to God and we trust him with our affliction, we will find in him a source of hope and joy, which can give our hearts the strength we need to persevere through trials. Let's stop for a moment and let this really sink in. Where are the places of affliction in your life right now? Where are the places that you are tempted to think, God has forgotten me? 
Do you, like David, have someone in your life who has it out for you? Do you, like David, uh, or, or perhaps maybe there's some relationship or work at work or at school or in your family where somebody's just completely opposed to you, maybe even trying to destroy you in some way? Or maybe uh, your uh, enemy is your own sin. Maybe you hear Satan's voice telling you that you are not worthy, that because of your sins, God has forgotten you. How could he care? How could he truly have love for you? Maybe it's something else. There's illness in your family or loss or depression or anxiety, something that seems just too big for you to overcome. God sees you. God sees you. He sees your affliction. God has not forgotten you. Bring your affliction to him. Entrust it to him as a fortress and a refuge for you. He will strengthen your hearts. He will not let your hope be in vain. In God, you have a loving heavenly father who cares deeply for your sorrows, who promises to be a refuge for you. You know, I also think that this passage is an encouragement when the church fails. And as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was thinking about our own denomination and how there have been news stories recently about failures in sexual abuse across our denomination. Um, and right now I'm just sitting with those stories. But one thing that really came out to me is that a lot of these are stories about how injustice hasn't been seen. Either the person sinned against didn't, was, didn't feel they could say anything for a long time, didn't feel they'd be listened to, or even worse, did say something, and somebody in the church who should have listened didn't. Uh, and I think that calls for a response for us. But first, and today, I think we just have to say God sees it. And isn't that so important? Even when humans fail, God sees it. God cares about it. And God acts on it. So that's our second point. Though we're tempted to forget God, he has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten you. But finally, we also have to talk about what this psalm means in light of Jesus. For we now have a demonstration of God's justice, which is far greater than what David knew. In the cross and the empty tomb, we have an even greater assurance that God will not forget us. First of all, in Jesus, we have a radical demonstration of God's love for the poor, don't we? When God comes in human flesh, it's as a poor, weak baby. And Jesus lives his whole life in poverty and weakness. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All this is the gift of his life as an offering to the Father. Jesus doesn't give in to the temptation to forget God. You know, when Satan is in the wilderness and offers him a way out of his hunger, a way to short-circuit his path of suffering and get himself to glory now, Jesus refuses. He sets his face on the path of suffering, walking resolutely towards the cross in Jerusalem. And along the way, he displays the love of God incarnate towards the poor, towards sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, towards the outcasts. 
Jesus pours his life out for them. Jesus is consumed with zeal for justice. He burns with God's just, perfect anger against the exploitation of the poor, as we see in the cleansing of the temple. And all of this is Christ's obedience in your place. It's for us that Jesus lived the perfectly just life, which we so often fail to do. And so he remains faithful even to the cross, But what happens at the cross? Jesus enters into the very depths of human oppression. He's falsely accused, beaten, and torturously killed. But that's only the physical agony. Jesus is also abandoned. He's abandoned by his followers, and he's even forsaken by God himself. Jesus, God's own son, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He enters into the depths of human abandonment and forsakenness. He's forgotten by God. Why? Why is Jesus forgotten? Because this is the penalty of the wicked, which is the penalty that we deserve. But it's poured out on Christ. And yet even still, Christ perseveres. Even in the depths of human forsakenness, our psalm uh, Psalm tells us, Even the depths of human forsakenness, Jesus perseveres in love, pouring out his life for us. Our psalm tells us that God takes our griefs and sorrows into his hands. And on the cross, we see God incarnate take all the deepest griefs and sorrows of humanity into himself to bear them and carry them down into the tomb. That's the sacrifice that Christ offers. But even that is not the end of the story Jesus is forsaken and forgotten, but not ultimately. No, his righteous offering is accepted. As Hebrews tells us, Jesus' prayers and supplications offered up to God were heard. And this is such an important part of the gospel story, too. You know, the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, is forsaken in the first place, it means that God himself takes upon himself the oppression of the world. But the fact that Jesus is vindicated from oppression... The fact that God sees his righteousness and raises him, it means that God sees that oppression and he will deal with it. Because of his perfect righteousness, God raised Christ from the dead, exalted him to his right hand in glory and power. In Christ's death, God's verdict of judgment on sin is heard once and for all. But in Christ's resurrection, God's verdict of justification is given to those who are united in him. God's justice is powerfully demonstrated in his son's death on the cross and his resurrection so that we can know that just as surely as God raised Christ from the dead, just as surely as God raised Christ from the dead, there is a day coming when Christ will come again to finally destroy all sin and injustice and to bring in a kingdom of perfect peace. Do you realize what an assurance you have been given, Christian? God himself has triumphed over your sorrow at the cross. And God himself has guaranteed your righteousness in Christ's resurrection, giving it to you as a free gift. And this is a sure hope both in the midst of your sin and the sin that's done against you. You have a God you can trust with your affliction. A God who assures you of his love in Christ 
a God who brings you to life by his spirit and strengthens you, who promises to keep you safe in his love until Christ returns again. We, like David, still walk by faith. We don't yet see Christ triumphant over all evil. We are still called to persevere through suffering and affliction, and we ourselves are still marred by sin, but we have a greater promise than David ever did. We have Christ who died and rose again as an assurance of the abundant, unfathomable love of God for us despite our sin. How could God forget you? Could he forget his own son who's seated at his side right now? You're united to Christ and a joint heir with him of the Father's perfect love. You've been given the Spirit who is one with the Father and the Son. It is this God who's given himself to you in Christ who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In Christ, we have a sure guarantee that God will not forget us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we each come to you with our own trials and afflictions. We've all experienced the brokenness of this world, whether we're in a period of great trial now or whether it's at another point in our lives in our own different ways. We all have those things, but we all come to you as the one God who we know will not forget us. And so we pray that you would help us to remember you this week. Remember the words of this passage that you have not forgotten us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.